truck and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today on The Blaze, live and on demand. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me per normal. 888-900-3393 is the number to The Blaze. 888-900-3393. Or you can just sit back and let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. Email us. Steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, today's Truth Bomb, as well as this week's edition of Three Non-Political Questions. Uh, Also, next hour, how much of the old group once known as Never Trump that I was once a charter member of How much of that group still exists and what has become of them? And what does that tell us about uh, that group, uh, good or bad? We'll get into that uh, a little bit later on, as well as this week's Theology Thursday. Speaking of which, um, you know, our Theology Thursday comes right out of the scriptures and getting that message out uh, to people that live in closed countries. That's the mission of back to Jerusalem. Uh, They're based in China and their vision is to reach every closed country between Jerusalem and China with the light and hope of the gospel. What do we mean by a closed country? It means the leaders of that country don't want the gospel in their borders because they'd rather keep the people oppressed uh, rather than give them the hope and inspiration, the ultimate inspiration that is found only in God's word. If you want to bring the word of God, you want to bring hope, Uh, to Iran, uh, Somalia, uh, China, North Korea. Help us support Back to Jerusalem. Their goal is to get 15 or get 10,000 of these Bibles uh, that, and they're $15 a piece. Now, it is the Bible. I mean, they didn't like print up their own version. This is their Bible or the Bible, but they have put it in a package that's pretty small. Uh, in order to get it past the gatekeepers in these closed countries, they need $15 from 10,000 of us. That's the mission goal here. They're asking for our help here on The Blaze. If that's something you're interested in, blazehelp.org, that's the website, blazehelp.org, or you can give them a call at 844-305-0566. That's 844-305-0566. And now, here's Aaron with what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by If you can't make a good deal with a politician, then there's something wrong with you. I know the best people. I know the best managers. I know the best deal makers. And I'm a very good deal maker, believe me. I guess I look at everything like a deal. You either have it or you don't. I know guys that are so good. I do hundreds of deals. I deal, the deals come out of my ears and they're good deals. Most of them are phenomenal deals. What's wrong with us is we have people that don't know what they're doing making deals with some of the smartest people in the world. But I'm different than other presidents. I'm a deal maker. I make great deals. I'm Donald Trump. I wrote The Art of the Deal. Whether it's Trump, The Art of the Deal, which Obama and Kerry obviously did not read. Obama definitely didn't read. Obama Ben's a doctor and he's not a deal maker. It's like sports. You have natural hitters in baseball and natural shot makers in basketball and natural putters in golf. 
He's not a natural deal maker. It doesn't come naturally to him. With Congress, you have to get everybody in a room and you have to get them to agree. But you have to get them to agree what you want. And that's part of being a deal maker. But what evidence two years into his presidency that Donald Trump is living up to his own billing as an amazing deal maker? That's the question National Review's Jonah Goldberg posed and Steve asked this audience yesterday on Twitter. Here are some of the replies. Leaps says, only deal I can really see is that Trump has somehow worked out a deal with Melania, convincing her to live at the White House with him. That is the only one I can think of. Not a Trump fan. Ouch. Lawrence Kemp, though, provides a more nuanced analysis. I don't think he's great at making deals. Trump's strengths appears to be bringing people to the table. His Peter Pan qualities make him personable in limited interactions, which draw people in. But his ego destroys in the long run. The ultimate one-night stand. Greg Neva says he's terrible at it. And some of that is due to not being trustworthy. How can you make a deal with someone whose word can't be trusted? John Hensley adds, nothing so far, but let's see what happens with China, where he has an advantage. At this point, Dems and rhinos stabbing him in the back has been at disadvantage. Fact had all Congress for two years with basically nothing speaks volumes. Marion Winterset says NAFTA part droit is evidence of his deal-making abilities, as it was a win for U.S. laborers. Jack Hole's spunky trucker says he's fighting with one hand behind his back. His trade deals seem to be positive for us. Everything that requires help from the GOP seems like he's battling both sides. Wonder how much good stuff could have been passed in the first two years with team support. KW Light adds, Prior to POTUS, Trump reportedly made great business deals. Motivation? Dollars. Now, as president, his deal-making is ineffective. Why? He's unprincipled. Motivation? Feed his ego, which leads to waffling on policy. And finally, Mandy says, I think he's trying to honor his promises and has had many successes. I don't think he gets fair coverage or credit for anything he gets done. I'm very disappointed in congressional Republicans, though. They could have done so much more. And that's what happened while we were away. All right. So would we have when I, uh, uh, eight. About eight? Yeah, and, not counting the first one. Yeah. So, and that's a sampling. Overall, we probably got around 40. 40. Yep. Uh, about 40 replies on Twitter, which for Twitter following of mind of about uh, 53,000. And, you know, we've always tell you about a quarter of Americans have a Twitter account. And, and among those who are active with it, uh, it's, it's, it's an even smaller number. So, I mean, that's a pretty good cross-section for an audience of this size. And I, on purpose, did not read the replies and because um, I wanted to leave it up to Aaron to sort of uh, sift through there and come up with a cross-section of um, what the overall opinion was of those that responded. I wrote down several specific things as we were going along. Before I get into those, though, and we discuss them, I want to get your take, Todd just in total to this entire conversation. And, and, and let me say the reason we're having it is because what's going on right now as we speak, what is happening uh, as they're attempting to cut uh, one of the most definitive deals of his presidency, actually, at least the first term of it, it may go a long way to determine. And, and, and I say that with the caveat always of um, the Democrats are going insane. All right. But, it, it may go so maybe it wouldn't go a long way to determining 
whether he'll get a second term. Maybe a better way of saying it is it'll go a long way to determining how much he can take advantage of how crazy the Democrats are becoming. Is that a, is that a fair way of putting it now? Because I don't know, as we've pointed out in the last week, I think we're at the point now with where the Democrats are gone, have gone. We can't definitively say anymore, this ends Trump, or this is a, the, the traditional metrics of what presidents could not overcome that were self-inflicted wounds, when we're dealing with the first openly communist political party in American history, um, that could, and we could be wrong, but the possibility of the American people putting up with something, a certain level of ineptitude or disappointment, depending on which term you would prefer to use, in the current choice for, in the current incumbent in the White House, might be a lot higher than what their patience and tolerance was for it in years past. And that's something we'll talk about on our roundtable today on The Blaze, some interesting polling out on what Americans' views are on words like socialism and capitalism, and then how those views break down from Republicans to Democrats. And you're going to see that in, this, in these numbers that a, a, a large cross-section of the Democratic Party is way out of the mainstream with where the majority of the American people are. And so an acknowledgement of that, and a campaign's only going to bring more of that to light, by the way, okay? We're only going to see more of that. I keep bringing this up. We're a year away from a vote in Iowa, and we're already at kill all the babies, cancel all the health insurance, um, uh, open all the borders, um, and, and blackface, uh, and, and, and turn in all your cars, and we're going to uh, bulldoze all your homes and cancel air travel for, to put to trains over the ocean, right? That, that's where we're at here in, on Valentine's Day. So we're a year away from voting. All the Democratic candidates aren't even in yet. So it's not as if this is the furthest kook this is going to go. It's going to go further which means what people by comparison may be willing to tolerate from Donald Trump in order to reject that may be a higher number than what a George H.W. Bush, for example, um, and and his self-inflicted wounds, what they cost him. So we have to acknowledge that in the macro. So let's phrase it as his ability to capitalize on the Democrats' kook factor. Is that that fair then? Okay. This moment right now, and what's being, what's being suggested is that he sign a bill that will fund the government for the next seven months and will essentially take his number one issue off the table for seven months. That's a lot of the rest of this year. We'll go in, you'll, it'll be September. And at that point now, people will be back in school. It'll be football season. Other things will be going on. A lot of the American attention span will not be on politics at that point in time, particularly in a non-election year. So he's being asked by the Republicans to fund the government for the next seven months. And coming up in our truth bombs portion here in a little while, while we're going to tell you what's in some of this budget, by the way. And it's, it's, it's an amnesty palooza, guys. All right? It's an amnesty palooza. So he's being asked to fund this and take this. And this is the only deal he could get. And it's actually $300 million less in border security than what the Democrats offered him back in December. All right, so this is the the whole aspect of his deal making. This is why Jonah Goldberg brought this up, and I like using Jonah as an excuse because Jonah might be the last remaining original Never Trumper who has not abandoned all conservatism in the process. Right? Wow. He might be the last one, at least the last one I, with a name. As annoying as he is, I think you're actually right about all right? that. The, all of us that were in this group, about twenty percent of us 
gave it up when we realized that you're asking us to give up conservatism. So now we have to criticize Trump when he's when he does what we want him to do. We're out. Okay, and then the other 80 percent of us. Uh, were really people that were really never conservative, right? And they keep proving that. Jonah might be the last remaining name in this group who re- who remains staunchly never Trump uh, and hasn't soiled his undies beyond just, you know, his personality grading on you at times. Uh, I mean, a complete and total abandonment of conservatism. And some of you would argue, well, David French has David French will argue he's conservative, but every time there's a fight, we must preemptively surrender it so that we can't do anything that would possibly get our hands dirty. That, that would be kind of his argument. So he is, he's like the French rifle on, on, on eBay, uh, seldom used, never fired. All right, I mean, that's, that's the description. So he's like in a separate category as far as I'm concerned. Um, so using him as the proxy for this question and getting the reactions of our audience, given the timing of what's happening right now, I thought this was a good moment to take a look at what people thought. And what did you think of what they thought, Don? Well, to the answer the question that you posed, what are we going to tolerate in the name of something other than the progressive scourge? You're going to have to tolerate the man you vote for president being a total joke. Listen, we've been riffing on the all the best deals thing for quite some time because this is a joke that has been building. Uh, And when uh, Trump just was uh, the pictures in the White House of him sitting next to Schumer when he caved on Obamacare, that's the one time in his presidency I just said, you might as well impeach the guy uh, from the right because he can't. He, he doesn't know what the art of the deal is. It was a scam all along. I used that term scam, you'll remember, a couple days ago in terms of uh, him uh, as a president and, and, and it, it being a guy who could break up the system. And here we are now in that scene. To me, listen, he he's ripping on Obama because he says he's not a natural and clearly by extension saying that I, I am the natural. Come on, man. You ain't Roy Hobbs. Man, you're... You're the Mendoza line, man. You can't even hit above 200 when it comes to the art of the deal. If you Again, if you vote for the guy because of the left is so bad, I understand you. I may ultimately do it too. But I'll be voting for a joke, particularly in light of what's on the table right now with this deal. Uh, if I can get in on kind of my observations as well. What, from from looking at all these, uh, Jonah and yourself act, asked for evidence uh, that Trump is a good deal maker. Do you know what was lacking except for one tweet in there? Hmm. Evidence. <laughs> there was one person who said that uh, NAFTA Part 2 was evidence that he's a good deal maker because it was decidedly better for American workers. I think that's debatable. But there's one piece of evidence. Um, the rest was either, and it was, I think I'm pretty comfortable in my snapshot that I took cross-section uh, through those eight tweets of what the audience, it was either, um, no, he's a bad deal maker, uh, no evidence of that, or it was blaming the Republicans or put, placing part of the blame on Republicans. I think both of those things can be true simultaneously, but when you actually look for evidence, like real hard evidence there is very little to be found, and I think that that's borne out through the the, the responses mm-hmm. and the replies to these. The people cannot seemingly find very many uh, instances where Trump has actually cut a deal. And I can't remember if this was in the montage of Trump at the beginning of the montage 
where he says what you have to do uh, with Congress is get them all together and agree on something, but it has to be something that that uh, that you want. That's not happening. It hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it's going to happen again. And boy, if this again, we said this. Todd bringing that up about uh, caving on Obamacare is dead on the money. We brought this up around this time last year. Uh, if he caves on this, what's what what's the point of having him? He says some good things, but when it actually comes to actionable items that need legislation, that he needs to use his bully pulpit to persuade and really stand, oh boy, uh, this is this is not the droid you are looking for. Well, I'm just going to speak about this purely politically. For him as the president, um, I, 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 I'm trying to figure out how any of his political advisors are selling him that taking his number one winning issue, <clears throat> excuse me, off the table for the majority of this year is a good thing. I, I, I don't understand. And I get, well, we can't have a shutdown. There's other ways of doing this then, um, you know, but to take a deal that would take his most galvanizing issue and the issue that most exposes the Democrats at this point, immigration, and to take it off the table for the majority of a whole year. Because here's the thing. If you take that issue off the table, there's not, there aren't too many places left for him to have a substantive fight. We've already moved the embassy in, in Jerusalem. Um, he's going to go to Vietnam and, and uh, slurp on the North Korean leader. So we're not going to have a fight there. Then you're left with, you know, uh, Internet memes and Twitter trolls. And the problem with those is for all the clicks they generate amongst folks like you, the, 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 the rest of America that's not hanging out with us here hates that crap. I mean, just hates it. They think it's immature, it's annoying, they can't stand it, okay? Uh, and so if you take a principled fight off of the table, you know what I talked about myself yesterday and I said, the way my mind works, if it doesn't stay busy on good things, it's going to stay busy on something else, right? Okay? That's kind of a version of what I'm talking about here. Um, he likes to be in the arena. He likes... The con- he likes to feel like he is in, the, in a contest of wills. He prefers that. It's pretty clear. Well, if you, if, you take a one, if you take a principled one off the table, it's going to be replaced with, you know, uh, uh, more we're going to ban Jim Acosta, then go to court and get cucked there. I mean, who loses to Jim Acosta in court? Okay. I mean, all the stuff that, that matters to people will be off the table. Planned Parenthood is going to be funded. Every battle that would matter would be largely off the table and funded for the next seven months. And all you would get is Mitch McConnell, Green Deal show votes. That, that's all that we would have this entire time, which, again, drives clicks here and on Twitter. But the vast majority of Americans hate that crap. They don't watch cable news. They don't watch network news. They're not on Twitter. They, they cannot stand most of that. All right. So um, you would be essentially vacating the space for the majority of this year. You would be politically vacating the space that you just used your state of the union address to claim. And you would say, Hey, I'm you, he, I'm the guy for better or for worse. I'm going to answer the call of history here. 
And I'm, I am, for all of my issues, I am going to be the guy that, rec- that I'm going to stand athwart of these leftists on your behalf. 76% of the people in the CBS poll said, thank you. We've been looking for somebody to do that. And you don't have to be great. You don't have to even, you know, be a, the, the best person in the world. Can you just be a speed bump between us and them? Just to hold them off. Thank you. And now he's going to respond with, and that's and my and the way I'm going to do that is every opportunity on, of leverage I have to hold these people back, I'm now going to give that up for the majority of the year 2019. I'm just going to hand it off for seven months. And we're already almost into March. So we're really talking about most of this year. Help me. I'm just talking now from a, as a political guy. Forget about principles, everything else. I'm just talking now as a political guy. Where's Killian? I've been a political hack. Yeah, that would be my question. I've been a political hack. You know, I, I, help me to understand why that's good for him politically. I That makes zero sense to me. And whatever the blowback may be of another shutdown, which again can be, you can just re, you can just avert this by, you, if nothing, well, Steve, what's the alternative? I often get asked, Steve, what's your alternative then? You know, when, I, when you take your car to the lot, if you knew how to fix it, guess where you wouldn't? Would you take it to somebody to pay them to do it if you knew how to do it or you had the time to do it? No. no. So you take it there and they're the expert and they're the one that has the job and you hire them and they tell you it's fixed when you drive it off the lot. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a day or a week later, it breaks down again. When you bring it in and they look at you and said, well, what do you suggest we do? What are you thinking? Well, if I, what the hell do you have? If I knew how to do your job, why don't I have it? Why, why? It's not our responsibility to tell him how to be president of the United States. Okay. But since I know some of you will ask me and some of his staunchest shills will as well, I'll answer you. You want to know what is dramatically better politically? And it now it's not principled <laughs> on any reasonable stretch. But you know what would be a dramatically better political outcome is if he just kept re-signing these two-week resolutions all the time. Because at least every two weeks you'd get to reset this debate. Every two weeks you'd have a platform to remind the American people, here's who the Democrats are. Here's why we don't have a budget. Here's why we don't have a wall. I'm not going to shut the government down. I know you don't like that. I listen to the people. You don't want shutdowns. I listen to the people. I won't shut the government down anymore. All right. But if you want to know why we're having this argument every two weeks, they don't listen to the people. You want, you, here's what you told me. You told me you want border security and you don't want the government shut down. I'm willing to give you what you want. I will not shut the government down. They're the ones that won't give you the border security. You could at least reset this every two weeks until the American people were so freaking sick of it. They said, enough, secure the damn border. You could at least do that. Now, that's not principled on any level whatsoever. But it's a hell of a lot better politics than taking your signature issue and really every issue you have with them, every argument you have with them, and punting on your excuse to have them for the next seven months. What are you going to do then? What are you going to talk about all this time? I think we all know I don't care how big of a shield you are for Trump. Ask yourself this question. What's better for him politically? Tweeting heart emojis to Kim Jong-un or smacking Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer around? What do you think is better? I got to believe we all agree on that, regardless of where we're at on Trump. No one would think it's a better universe that for him to, to be out there tweeting heart emojis to Kim Jong-un 
than slapping Schumer and Pelosi around on the regular. This this part is the part that makes no sense to me. And that's why if you look at the responses, there's a common theme in all of them. Well, there's two. One is his lack of character. And see, he thought that was going to be to his advantage. You know why we did this show a couple last week? Remember the show we did? Gangsters, Crusaders, and Groupies. See, he's used to dealing with people that are like, you know what, I really didn't want that complex in Manhattan anyway. And if you cut me a $10 million check, I'll go away and you can have it. He, see, he thought the Democrats were like him. He thought they were the same kind of soul as he is. He thought that if he just gave them a lot of what they wanted, they'd give him some of what he wanted. He could declare wins. They got what they want and we all walk. They're not that. They're trying to win an argument with history. They're trying to alter the course of history. They're trying to undo history, in fact. They are not interested. They are not interested in, you get some of what you want. They won't even cut the old deals of give Democrats 20% of what they want or 80% of what they want. We take 20% and then lie to our base. It's a win. No, the deal that Trump's getting right now that that he's being told to sign, this is worse than the deal he rejected in December. It's worse. It's worse. By any reasonable measure, it's worse. He came out of this for two months, a shutdown and a State of the Union speech, and ended up being told, you've got to sign a deal worse than the one that we begged you to sign before Christmas. Think about that. He was, he's basically being told, You're, you are being denutted right now. You'll take nothing and like it. That's what they're telling him. See, his mistake is believing they were his kind of soulless, meaning these people just want to walk out of here with the most toys. No, they don't. This is the conquest of the planet of the apes, guys. One civilization wins and one loses. He was never, this is why, this is why I always told you when I was never Trump, he won't be able to do any of the things he wants to do because I'd already done the whole gangsters, crusaders, and groupies thing. The gangster always loses to the crusader all throughout history, never changes. The crusader always beats the gangster. You want to beat the crusaders, you've got to have your own crusaders. That's the only way. Crusaders do not lose to gangsters. Because they don't define winning and losing the same way the gangster does. The gangster defines it as we made the trains run on time. The crusader makes it, defines it as those are my damn trains now. That's how the crusader defines it. He can't cut these deals. Because he's not dealing with people that are like the people who used to, he used to deal with. They're soulless but of a different way. They represent another religion. The spirit of the age. They will not be dealt with. They must be defeated. Period. There's not a middle ground. And the other common refrain here that I see is, and, and this isn't an excuse, it's a reason. An excuse is why you didn't do what we all knew you were supposed to. A reason is why you couldn't do what we hoped you could. All right? Every, everything that everybody says about the Republican Party is right on the money. They have left him out here yep. with his every time he's tried. I will give him credit. He has at least tried more. That's why I'm not never Trump anymore. He's actually tried. More. I didn't think he'd ever try, actually. He's actually tried more than I thought. Then he's kind of given up after trying. But at least he has tried. He has tried. And every time he goes out there with his you-know-what flapping in the wind, and, he's out, and he looks around, and, and the Republicans are like, what do you mean we loan, Ranger? You got him. We're back here. We don't care. Because we know we can just give our vote, our base some lying, scam, Green New Deal vote. And they'll forget about all the times we voted to defund or to eliminate Obamacare and then didn't when we had the power to do it. That's the game. He is on his own. There is no doubt about that. 
And so everything, all, that's not an excuse. That is a reason. You have well, any thoughts on that topic? Well, Go ahead. at that point then, a guy who is genuinely a natural at the art of the deal really has one card to play. He needs to expose the GOP right now. Yes, yeah. Out loud, directly names yes. Mitch McConnell is an enemy of conservatism. Yeah. It needs to be said out loud now. He needs. He should have turned his base on the party a year over the first Obamacare fight with the way Paul Ryan screwed him. You're right. And then we have the whole debate about why doesn't he, and I don't know the answer to that. I know some people in the White House, I'm not close enough to it to theorize. I don't know the answer to that. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home this year, check out Real Estate Agents I Trust. It's a company started by Glenn Beck and some of his associates a few years ago. Tired of real estate agents that talked a good game? Well, that kind of sounds... Segue, uh, but then couldn't deliver when you need it in the most. Now, the difference between this and other referral services is they are set up to help real estate agents find customers like you. This one is set up for customers like you to find the right real estate agent. This is the empowerment of the customer. And there's nothing foolproof about human nature east of Eden, but at the very least, it's a good sign when people hold themselves up voluntarily to scrutiny and vetting as the agents that are part of the system at Real Estate Agents I Trust, they have done. They're like, hey, I believe so much in my integrity and my capability, you can absolutely vet me and I sign up to be uh, that level of uh, transparent and accountable. That's why if you're buying or selling a home this year for the right price at the right time, check them out online, realestateagentsitrust.com. That's realestateagentsitrust.com. More here on The Blaze in a moment. Homeowners, beware another major data breach. This time, 24 million people uh, could potentially expose you to home title fraud. That's a crime that could cost you your home. If you have a mortgage, a refi, or a HELOC through a major bank, this breach may have put you at risk of losing every dollar of equity in your home, maybe even the home itself. And, And why is that important? Well, other than the fact that your home, uh, your home also, for most Americans, it'll be the most valuable investment uh, the vast majority of you will ever uh, be able to acquire in your lifetimes. Don't let other people, uh, thieves, take advantage of your equity and your hard work. Uh, the banks won't protect you if you've got, a, you know, your, your funding through them. They won't protect you. Even identity theft protection, which you should have, it won't protect you from this either. But home title lock will for just pennies a day. They put a virtual barrier around your most important investment your home. If you want to learn more or find out, maybe my home is already a target. HomeTitleLock.com is the website. They'll give you a free title scan and report for being a part of our Blaze family. That's normally a $100 value, but today it is free at HomeTitleLock.com. Pardon me. All right, let's get to today's uh, truth bomb. Inspired by my new book, Truth Bombs Confronting the Lies Conservatives Believe to Our Own Demise, available now. Uh, at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere, but you go to Amazon.com right this minute. You don't have to leave, go anywhere, the dead of winter, and order your copy right now. If you have and you like it, please leave us a five-star review at Amazon.com. And thank you to those of you that already have. Today's truth bomb, we're just going to spend a few minutes on this. Um, But you probably should be following a lot of our people at Conservative Review because we seem to be apparently one of the only people right now 
uh, that is actually covering what's inside uh, of this uh, omnibus that the president... By the, by the way, the president, remember he promises he was never going to sign another one of these? <clears throat> that was his promise. I'm never going to sign another one. Well, here we are. Here's, here's something. Uh, this is from our friend Daniel Horowitz, who was on with us yesterday. Uh, this bill gives amnesty to the very people fle- fleecing our country, paying cartels and trafficking kids. It limits the border wall and gives liberal counties veto power in a way that could override even executive action, doubles low-skilled labor, and expands catch and release. That's essentially the Obama-era uh, immigration policy in a nutshell. And that, remember we gave you some of the preliminary numbers the other night, 10,000 fewer detention beds, uh, Obama's catch and release continues. This is sort of now we're itemizing what those provisions actually will lead to. And I can promise you that Daniel's read more of the 1,600 pages in this bill than the vast majority of the 535 total members of Congress that will be asked to vote on it today or tomorrow. I can promise you that. Uh, Here's another uh, aspect of the bill that uh, we wanted. This is Jessica Vaughn at uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, and she notes, uh, here's a gem from the spending bill, Section 224A, says that ICE may not remove any sponsor or potential sponsor or member of a household, uh, UAC basically is an, uh, un- un- is an unaccompanied uh, child that came into the country illegally, okay? That's de facto amnesty or sanctuary for anyone anywhere near one of these children. Uh, and by the way, 30 to 40% of MS-13 arrests have been folks that claimed they had these unaccompanied uh, minors, children. Why? Because MS-13's a gang doing human trafficking. And so what happens is the human traffickers say, well, we've got these uh, children, and you, you, it's for the kids, and you don't want to lock up the kids. You want to separate the kids from their parents, right? Wait, all the, wait, all the you, scam arguments we've heard. Are you saying that people who come here illegally are also, <clears throat> also taking advantage in a very cynical way of our lax immigration laws? Is that what you're saying, yeah, Steve? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying they're, they're more wow. inclined to, at the very least. And so what happens is the, the human traffickers say, well, we're with, we've got these kids. They're in a company. You can't separate us. Oh, yeah, okay, go about your way. And they that's... That's how they get away with it. And so this bill essentially gives them more free license to go ahead and continue doing exactly that. Remember the story from 2012 that we played for you here on the show a few weeks ago? That reminded me exactly of that. The guy who says, well, no children. The illegal alien who says, no children live here. We're just saying that 15 do in order to get money for them and social security numbers. Okay? That's That's what she's addressing as just one provision in this omnibus bill that the president uh, appears to be poised to sign, which, by the way, again, won't just take the immigration issue off the table, but every fight that you want to have in Congress with the Democrats for the majority of this year off the table because it's going to fund everything for the next seven months, which has prompted, I've been critical of her in the past. That's why, again, we call balls and strikes. Laura Ingram is exactly right here. So the president has his hand forced to sign a 1,159-page bill that we know is filled with amnesty, pork, and wiggle room. Total scam. President Trump wasn't elected for this. Right on the money, sister. Couldn't have said it better myself. Gentlemen, any thoughts on this before we move on? Uh, If it isn't now, if it wasn't uh, when the midterms... uh, uh, were voted on a couple months ago. Uh, this presidency is about to become a broken arrow. It just get get back in the helicopter, pull out, and I'm um, walk. Away. I mean, it's 
it is utterly pointless other than a last-ditch effort uh, <clears throat> to ward off uh, progressivism uh, in the election of 2020. And, 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 and that just means he's a warm body that's not them. But he's being he's currently being used by them right now. So by extension, you make of that what you will. I just I, I this is why. And I'm, I'm saying it's not a joke. I'm, I'm giving up Donald Trump for Lent. I want to say this one more time before we move on to three questions. OK, if you want this president to be reelected. If you want to continue and whether you believe in him or you just don't want the communists to whatever the reasons are, he's good for your business. He's good for the economy. He's good for your career. Whatever are the reasons you would like Donald Trump to be reelected in 2020. Hear me out right now. It is terrible politics to take every issue that he could beat the Democrats on off the table for the majority of this year. It's bad. And if you take substantive fights off the table with this president, he's going to fill them with something else. And largely the trivial ones that most Americans don't like and drives up his negatives. He can crush these people if he fights them on substance. This would take, tell the, Steve, what should we do? Tell the president, send me a two-week resolution. It can even have every word. Don't change a word. It's just for the next two weeks. But no, we're not taking everything off the table for the next seven months. That's the majority of this year. That ta- There's a reason why it's timed this way and the Democrats want to do it. Because the president grabbed all the moral high ground in the State of the Union last week. And he's now about to say, I'm not going to go on offense with any of it for the next seven months. Well, if we're not going to fight on this for the next seven months, we're going to fight on Jim Acosta memes. And outside of our own self-pleasuring circles, no one else in America likes that. Not one suburban woman who voted Democrat last year is going to be persuaded by that. This is terrible politics. Policy and everything else aside, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible idea. It's not handing the ball to Todd Gurley the, enti- for the entire Super Bowl bad. That's what it is, guys. I've said my piece. Let's get to three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Brought to you by Cosmo Hurts Kids. Miss Victoria Hurst is trying to take one of the toughest stands you can possibly take against her own family, the Hurst family. They own Cosmopolitan Magazine. She's disturbed by its tilt towards more adult-oriented content in recent years, and, and she's trying to get their attention to say, hey, if you guys want to become like Playboy, then you should be shielded from minors like Playboy and other adult material is. If you agree... Uh, visit her website and lend your voice. Cosmo Hertz, H-U-R-T-S, CosmoHertzKids.com. That's CosmoHertzKids.com. And now, a brief respite from politics, because we always need one. Aaron has this week's three non-political questions. Thank you, Steve. Uh, first one. Uh, this is, all of these have, are like two or three part questions, so just bear with me. Uh, what is one moment in your sports fandom that up until that moment 
you never thought you'd see in your lifetime. That's the first part. What's one uh, sports accomplishment you don't think you'll see again in your lifetime? And what's one that hasn't happened that you would like to see in your lifetime? The one that has happened I thought I would never see um, is is Michigan winning a Rose Bowl to win a national championship in football when that happened in 1997. I never thought I would see that, just given how the, the Rose Bowl had been a graveyard uh, for so many of our teams uh, over the years. The one I... Don't think I'll ever see again. Um, I hope I'm wrong, okay? But um, when we first moved to Michigan, when I was a kid, and I first started adopting all the Michigan sports teams, and uh, the Tigers won the World Series my first full year uh, as a Michigander. And, And right now, off the top of my head, I can still give you the starting nine for the 1984 Detroit Tigers. For the interest of time, I won't. But I mean, that team is in my DNA. I mean, it's, it's, it's imprinted, uh, on, uh, you know, on me. And we just went through an era where we were in the playoffs pretty much every year for almost a decade and couldn't win a world series. And that has me concerned that I may never see, uh, my tigers win one again. Um, going back to 1984, when you have that much sustained success and you can't get it done. And the one I, I don't think I will ever see, uh, I think we all know what that one is. Come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> one playoff win in 62 years, all right? The Detroit Lie, L-I-E, Lions, all right? I don't believe I'll ever see them uh, win a Super Bowl. Todd? Uh, the one I thought I would never see, uh, and it's happened three times, is uh, the, the Wisconsin Badger basketball team in the Final Four. And we were, you know, like seven minutes away from uh, winning that thing, uh, too. So uh, amazing. Uh, the thing uh, that will never happen again, well, I mean, it's just to go off of what Steve says with the Lions, I, th- with the, the embarrassment of Richards that has been the Packers with uh, Favre and Aaron Rodgers, like, I, and it's just brought back to like with the Broncos right now and signing um, Flacco. It's just, I. It just reminds me of how lucky the Packers have been, and and the, I mean, there's how on earth is the the next quarterback going to be able to live up to that? And the one what's that never will happen in my fandom? Never happen, man. Do, 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 do. Can I? You, you can. It doesn't have to be specific to your. I should have been. I'm sorry. Oh. I should have been less specific. It doesn't have to be specific to your teams. Oh. Yeah. Well, the one that will well, never. Of course. My inclination was to make it all about me. <laughs> well, I said. Well, those are fun. I said what uh, I said in your fandom, so okay. I, I, it's my fault. Well, uh, well, n- never. Well, that's never. It's never uh, like Cal Ripken. That that's that's oh, the the streak. That's, yeah, I don't that, think we'll ever see that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, etched in stone. What uh, sixteen versus one last year? Yeah. UMBC. That's that's I never thought that that was going to happen. Uh, one sports accomplishment you don't think you'll see again in your lifetime. Probably the triple crown. I didn't that those things are seemingly so rare. Uh, and that just happened a couple of years ago. And then uh, one 2012 th- when Cabrera did it, right? The triple crown. No, I'm talking about. Oh, in horse racing. Yeah, in horse racing. It's actually happened twice now in the last seven or eight years. Yeah, no, that was uh, that's that's nuts because I used to watch that when I was sure. when I was growing up and it like never happened. 
what thing that hasn't happened in your lifetime that you'd like to see? I don't think the Browns have run a Super Bowl in my lifetime. No, and I would but like they to also see that eight playoff wins in the same amount of time. I would the like Lions to have one. Yeah, I would like to see them win a uh, a Super Bowl because even if the Chiefs don't win one before they do, it'll still give me hope that even the Browns, even the Browns can win a Super Bowl. You guys are all fired. Yeah. You had the wrong answer. The last one should have been uh, your Lions Leons, win a Super yeah, Bowl because Leons, we Lions. feel for you yeah. and we want this to end. We yeah. want this anguish to end. Sure, yes. sure. Uh, next one, it's different. It's same question, kind of uh, just the inverse, uh, but it's different for each of you. So we'll start with Todd actually for this one, if that's all right. Uh, what's one thing that could happen in the next Star Wars film, Todd, that would redeem the new trilogy for you? Well, oh man, that's tough because I'm I'm like I I I don't even really I'm, I'm not worried about going to see it right away. It's that disconcerting to me. But my prediction a while back, if they if they do um with uh Luke, if they full on bring him back and they do it as a way to spin the the death of Carrie Fisher and by extension the death of Leia that the within the force a a a a great act of of sacrifice has to be had uh to bring Luke back because Luke's the only way for for good to win and therefore Leia knows that she must die to bring Luke back I mean that that's actually that should be a no-brainer if they haven't thought of that fire everyone because it's actually so obvious i'm not a genius for thinking it up but if they do it in any other way i'm going to be disappointed quite frankly steve one thing that could ruin this uh new trilogy for you that could happen in the next star wars film yeah and you switched around because i'm not as negative on it yes. as you guys are yeah uh, uh bring back jar jar banks oh come on be more serious that's um, a low bar uh, <laughs> let's uh, i i think um the fail- the number one failure of Ryan Johnson's movie, in my view, is that he didn't make a sequel to The Force Awakens. He made his own Star Wars movie. And it's a very well-made movie, regardless of whether you see political messaging in there you like or don't like. Um, you know, the, the, the casino planet, 30 minutes is complete waste of time. But the other two hours of the film is exceedingly well, high-grade high filmmaking. It's just, it's, just not a, it's just not a sequel to The Force Awakens. It's his own movie. And so I, I think J.J. Abrams' number one goal is he must go back and give people the sequel to The Force Awakens that they thought they were going to get all along. He must explore the deeper mythology behind Snoke, the Knights of Ren, who Rey really is, rather than kind of having all these kitschy, postmodern, everything's nothing answers to all of these things. Okay, I think I think he needs to actually uh, make a film that is a sequel to the storylines he introduced in The Force Awakens that Ryan Johnson clearly wanted nothing to do with. This is going to sound off the wall crazy here, and I'm going to ask myself the same answer, the same question that I asked Todd, because I was more critical than than uh, than you as well. Um, if Snoke in that room in that scene, which everybody's seen this movie now, so hopefully I'm not spo- spoiling it for you, if he was doing the same thing that Luke was doing at the end of the movie, projecting himself, so in, essentially he comes back and he's mm-hmm. the big baddie again, he's mm-hmm. the big villain, because that was the thing I hated so much about that movie we're talking about snoke and snoke is this really creepy guy you don't know how big he is it was this huge mystery and then like halfway through the it's a little more more than halfway through the movie he's dead uh without much of a fight i just 
ticked me off. It drove me nuts to no end. That's the one thing that I would like to fix about that movie. Okay, quickly, the last one. Uh, if you were forced, stay with me on this one as well. If you were forced to write your will, and uh, in your will, you had to write that a band played at your funeral, and you only had three choices, who would you choose from these following three choices? Billy Joel, Neil Diamond, or Bob Dylan? Please provide a reason. Oh, I would choose Billy Joel. Yep. Uh, to me, the the song library uh, is dramatically superior to the other two. Uh, plus, um, he's in my key, so back in the day, he was a karaoke go-to. <laughs> okay. Time out. No. No. I didn't say I was good. I just said he he's... was in my key. I didn't say it was good. I didn't say it was a good key. I didn't say the key fit. All right? I didn't say, I just said it was in my key. That's all. Neil Diamond, you said? Can or we talk about your diet? To come into America! <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, the there weird voice. Be the way the weird, out of here. Yeah, the weird Said voice. Said the joker to the knee. Yeah, the, the weird voice singing over There's my too casket. Much confusion. My, my cold room temperature body. body. That would be hilarious. I can't get no relief. Yep. Yeah. See? Yep. You gotta just... No. You just gotta read Dylan's lyrics because you would like them. I mean, they're very... I know. They're, they're, his songs they're, are often sung better by other people. And they're, bibl- they're, he, they're sometimes, biblical illusions, quite frankly. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. We gotta come back. Hour two is next. Stay tuned. And we are back with hour two of the Steve Day Show here live and on demand on The Blaze. If you are listening to us on the podcast, whether that be uh, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, whatever is the podcasting platform of your choice, if you could leave us a five-star review, we would greatly appreciate that. Thank you to all of you that have done that. Also, uh, as a way of saying thank you, I've got a, 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 you know, a dad uh, tip for you. If your kids are like mine, you know, my son Noah, his, he just turned 12 and he's like Elf. Um, you know, his four food groups, candy canes, candy corn. Uh, his four food groups are pizza, macaroni and cheese, uh, cereal, and then uh, anything with sugar. Uh, so uh, noting, you'll note uh, not too many healthy things in there. Uh, so one of the ways I've, I've, I've uh, tra- inspired him uh, to, uh, to eat his vegetables is to get him to drink them. Uh, thanks to our friends at Brickhouse Nutrition and their outstanding product, Field of Greens. I use it as well. It's just hard uh, to eat fresh, to get that serving of that immunity system boosting, that antioxidant uh, boosting, uh, serving of vegetables that we need. And now you can get it uh, and you can get it in a delicious way as well through Field of Greens, all natural from our friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, a team of physicians that want to keep us healthy the way nature and our creator intended. If you want to try this right now, get 15% off of your first order. Uh, go to BrickHouseSteve.com. That's BrickHouseSteve.com. And if you use offer code Steve uh, there at checkout, you'll get 15% off your first order at BrickHouseSteve.com. Let's welcome in our guest here today. Uh, Matthew Peterson uh, is here with us. He's the vice president of education at the Claremont Institute. And he's got an interesting piece that um, is is a little personal to me as a uh, as a as a former Never Trumper. And the headline of the piece is "The Twilight of the Never Trumpers." And we want to welcome uh, Matthew to the show here today. Matthew, welcome uh, to the program on the Blaze. Good to have you with us, brother. How are you? 
Great. It's a nice rainy uh, Sunday, r- rainy morning here in Southern California. Yeah. Very happy about that. Well, it, you, you, it's 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 four degrees with seventeen inches of snow here in Iowa. So enjoy your rain. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, in, in, an Ameri- in, in an American culture that celebrates victimology, I believe I have exceeded you on the weather, weather intersectionality scale. I'm above you now. That is true. That's true. You are more oppressed and therefore uh, <laughs> you are higher on the scale. I, I read your article with interest because um, just to give you a little background on me. I mean, the, the, you know, I worked I literally didn't just support. I literally worked for the Ted Cruz campaign in the last election. And was heavily involved in helping to organize my home state of Iowa, the first in the nation caucus state, and worked for the campaign all the way until the last day uh, in May. And the reason that I was never Trump has someone that got to know Donald Trump uh, that that he came to early on in his run. As I write about in Truth Bombs, there's an entire chapter about my, uh, you know, more than a year dealings with Trump as he was ramping up his presidential run is is I didn't believe the obvious character concerns in of, of, of his life justified the risk of what I thought was unlikely to be any kind of ROI on a policy standpoint. And then I would essentially go out there uh, and carry water for someone that I didn't think could get elected, but then if he did, um, wouldn't deliver the goods. Uh, and then would just walk away at age 70, cash, you know, continue to be a billionaire while people like me are left with our careers in tatters and the conservative principles we have fought for that, you know, have now been kind of bastardized and blighted in the minds of many Americans. That, that was the moral calculus that I made at the time. The first weekend of his presidency, when he tried to actually um, invoke and impose the the travel ban on countries that President Obama had labeled as as terrorist havens, I was shocked because I I thought there was I didn't think I didn't think he was going to keep any of these promises, Matthew, not a one of them. And so the very first weekend, he said about going after an issue I care deeply about. I mean, I, the immigration issue has been front and center for me since long before Donald Trump, Donald Trump was still writing checks to, you know, Planned Parenthood when I was caring about the immigration issue. And so now I kind of feel like, well, his first weekend of the presidency he's fighting on an issue I care about. Do I, because I'm never Trump. So do I oppose a policy that I believe in and believed in before I ever met Donald Trump or if I do that, am I actually becoming the same hack, just the other side of the coin of this, you know, the, the Scotty Hughes and the, you know, this cabal harem scarum of Trump shills that crawled out from puss infested rocks in the last campaign? Don't I become exactly the, the, the what I with them offended me? And so I made the decision then that, you know what, in the end. If he's good, whoever wants to do what I think is right, I'm going to help him. And whoever does what I think is wrong, I'm going to oppose them. Previous considerations, those sorts of things be damned. And so never Trump kind of ended for me when the election ended once he took office. And I've just kind of been here when he's when he does what I like, I like it. When he doesn't, I don't. And I've and so I've watched this whole debate about what's left of never Trumpers over the last year, Matthew. And what I've noticed is um, for every Steve Dace or Eric Erickson, or Ben Shapiro that made the same, you know, calculation about why they were never Trump. There were like 10 never Trumpers that it turned out were actually like never conservative. Um, and, and now, and, and now I'm watching Bill Crystal, who used to be the, you know, if we just cut taxes, we don't need, he won't even support tax cuts now if Trump puts his name on it. 
And I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you zeroed in on Jonah Goldberg in your piece that we're talking about here today. Because I mentioned last hour, I thought Jonah Goldberg might be the last never-Trumper who hasn't completely and totally, um, big-name guy, abandoned conservatism altogether to remain never-Trump. So that's sort of my background with being never-Trump and the way I've observed the way it's evolved since I kind of left that behind. I want to turn it over to you. Your thoughts. Yeah, I think that what you're describing is uh, something many people went through in different ways, right? I mean, um, there were people who, in the you know Mer- the American people, there were people who thought, well, I don't know, I'm not sure about Trump, and they changed their mind as time went on based on the evidence and based on what they saw happening in American politics. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, many of their leaders did not uh, do that, and uh you know, it's understandable. People have different candidates they support in a primary. Primaries can be brutal. But I think you're exactly right that you see a lot of leaders who um, who, who simply refused uh, and re- still refuse to deal with what's actually happening uh, in American politics right now. And, and I hope it's revelatory. I hope that more people see what you see, which is that for many of these people who were our leaders, it is now questionable whether they were ever conservative in the way that we thought they were. Hmm. How much of this is that, you know, I learned, I've been involved in a lot of primary fights in the Republican Party all over the country right. in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I write in my book, Truth Bombs, is the only political party that hates people like me more than Democrats are the Republicans. And and they will do, I've seen them do things to beat candidates I backed in primaries or covered in primaries. You, you would never see them do these sorts of cutthroat tactics to Democrats in the general election. I mean, look at look at Mitt Romney is not, isn't even sworn in as a senator yet. And, he, and the minute he literally touches down in Washington, he writes a virtue signaling piece about Trump in the Washington Post. And yet he's been silent while we've had not one, but two democratic governors say, kill all the things basically, even after they're born and they leave the birth canal, kill them all fire up the Metallica if you want. And he's got nothing to say, nothing to say about that. Okay. So I wonder how much of this is. And I say this to my audience, Matthew, you tell me if this is going too far in your view that the Republican party's leadership would rather lose elections to Democrats than lose control of the Republican party to people like them. Your thoughts on that? All right, we're going to try to reconnect with him via Skype here in a moment. Todd, you were the one that brought this piece to my attention originally and and thought that this is something we should be discussing on the show. Tell our audience why. Well, Matthew first came to my attention because of a piece he wrote regarding Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson took a lot of flack for talking about themes that uh, he brought it up for specific reasons, but he brought up themes that in general we talk about on the show all the time. It's about ultimately what do we really view if you are an actual conservative? What is this movement really supposed to be? And who are the people? What are we conserving? What are we conserving? And why are, and this is where Matthew comes in, when he names names, in terms of, he uses this term elitism. Uh, Elitism, the elite government is always run by elites on both sides on some level. That's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. But who are our elites? What do they really stand for? Are they Mm -hmm. remotely conservatives at all? And in just, in asking the question you're about to get an answer to, that's where we're at. All right, Matthew, we have you back. Go ahead, sir. Sorry about that. So I think that we're in a time right now where 
we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be conservative, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, is an open question. And in fact, I, I think the word conservative is, is a bit of a problem these days because it, it's not clear what it means, right? I mean, uh, given, given that the people who were the leaders of conservatism uh, have gone in different directions, it's very unclear, I think, to people what is policy and what is principle. And I think what we need to do and what the Claremont Institute exists to do and what we explore on the AmericanMind.org, our new publication, is what's, what's actually a principle of American government mm -hmm. that, uh, that stays the same and what, is, uh, you know, what does that mean for policy which changes in our circumstances, right? Sometimes you have to adjust, you adjust law and policy based on whatever you're dealing with as a people at the time. And so uh, you know, that, that's something that the, the right is in generally – is generally speaking right now, uh, it's a process that we're going through. We need to rethink what is a principle and what, is the pr what are the principles and purposes of American government and therefore what should the policy be that we stand for based on those principles. Todd mentioned uh, your response to Tucker Carlson's commentary that uh, kind of lit up a lot of uh, people on the right uh, last month. And when I listened uh, and watched it, it reminded me of an observation we have been discussing on this show. So my friend Ted Cruz beats Beto O'Rourke by, what, three points in Texas uh, last November. Texas right now, if it was its own economy, would be one of the 10, 15, uh, if it was its own country, strongest economies on this planet. All right. Now, my old home state of Michigan has some impoverished areas like Detroit or Flint. I can understand if I were a conservative governor in a state like that or a county commissioner, I can understand why I might cut a deal with a social media giant to bring a bunch of jobs here, uh, even though that, that the cost of that will be importing a whole bunch of Democratic voters that will then vote against me, probably. OK, but 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 I would understand why I'd make that calculation, because, you know, our, our most basic needs aren't being met in our communities. They don't have food on their tables. They need jobs. Okay. Help me to understand though, how much more economic growth does Texas need that, it, that, that, it, that it just, without even thinking about it, let's import the last three points of beta or work voters that he didn't have last month. I mean, how many more, how many more jobs do you need? How much more job growth do you need? Right. And, and this, and I, and I thought Tucker was at least attempting to have a conversation about what is it we're trying to conserve, and and and, it, and everything that make everything that that in, that pads a bottom line is good, no matter what the, the 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 reverb is, no matter what the societal cost is, anything that leads to more money is good. Really, that's that's what we're about here. And whether I agreed with every inkling of it or not, I thought at the very least he was attempting to have a meaningful conversation that. We're judging when when I watched Neil Gorsuch being applauded by most of conservative media because of his views on the Chevron doctrine, but we had no idea what in the world his views were on Roe v. Wade. That to me is kind of an example of what Tucker Carlson was touching on uh, a little bit uh, in his in his monologue. There, your thoughts on that, Matthew? Yeah, and I, I would say, I mean, I, I think again, if we go to principles, we go we return to the principles of the founding. You'll see that the founding generation, obviously, they did not they, they did not conceive of social programs uh, of the left, such as the Great Society, right? That wasn't even on their their radar. But they certainly saw a relationship between uh, economic policy and morality. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Noah Webster in 1788 is writing in in kind of praise of the Constitution and in support of the Constitution, 
and he, he issues a pamphlet that's really about economic policy. And in it, he says, look, uh, you know, money affects morality. And if you have poor fiscal policy, you encourage bad choices and bad decisions that lead to injustice. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. And so, but, but he's not suggesting, see, conservatives have, have trained themselves to think, well, that kind of talk must mean I'm a liberal. That must mean I'm a socialist. That's right. crazy. Government does ultimately exist to help people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's why we have it. We want to be safe. We want all kinds of goods for ourselves and our families. It's just we, we don't think that handouts are the way to go, right? So let me give you an example of, of the kind of policy Noah Webster would support. He said, if you make, um, if you make debt, uh, very easy. If you if you make credit very easy to people who don't have money, who are poor, uh, you put them in, you almost, you, you know, the occasion of sin, you put them in a situation in which they're going to take the money because they need it, and then they're going to be indebted up to their ears, and they're, you know, they're, they're at the behest now, they're, they're controlled now by a number of other people, and so you should restrict lines of credit uh, to people who won't be able to pay it back, right? And, and what he says is, that's actually a moral policy because it helps train people to deal with what they have on the ground. So, so, so the crazy thing about this Tucker deal is all Tucker was saying was economic policy can help or hurt the family. And don't we care about the family? Mm-hmm. Since when is it you know, conservative to say that economics has nothing to do uh, with the family and other higher, deeper things that we care about? I, I, it's, it's puzzling to me and it's, it's revelatory that so many people are saying, oh, no. Economic policy is just something that is completely separate from the rest of politics. And, you know, it used to be called political economy because we saw that economics has to be related to uh, to the rest of politics. Mm-hmm. And, and if we talk about justice, right, then the left will. I mean, that's all they talk about, and they don't understand what justice is. But we need to understand what justice is because, as the Federalist Papers say, justice is the end of government, and people will desire justice, and eventually, if they don't get it, if they don't think they're getting justice, liberty will be lost in pursuit of justice. And so so we have to completely reframe our rhetoric more along the lines of what Tucker is talking about, I think, if we want to reach uh, the American people and make a strong case uh, for revivified right. Our people, when, we, when, when, when they hear arguments like this from me or today, they're hearing it, Matthew, from you. And, and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I, I don't hear in a lot of quote unquote conservative media. And why haven't we been talking about these things? This is why I'm a conservative. And, you know, why is Rush Limbaugh leading off today with Hillary's emails instead of uh, what let's let's sign a budget that essentially gives the Democrats everything they want for the next seven months, as opposed to pointing out to the country how crazy and communist they are. And our people ask questions of me all the time about why they don't hear more about the stuff what you're saying now. And I have a theory having working in this industry at a fairly high level. And I think that um, a lot of it is just very basic instinct. Much of what is known as conservative media is largely uh, fronted uh, uh, and backed by donors um, and isn't commercially all that successful. Uh, and one of the biggest, for example, would be the Koch brothers. Uh, they would be much more in line with uh, abortion, open borders. Uh, and as long as Neil Gorsuch is okay on the, if Neil Gorsuch was bad on the Chevron doctrine and, and pro-life, they'd opposed him. Okay. And so there's there, most of the major donors on the right are secularists. Most of the major donors on the left are too, but they're the true believers in the leftist religion. 
All right, they're the, the the Tom Steyers, the Warren Buffetts, the Bill Gates. They truly are expositors of the progressive spirit of the age. Most of the major donors that front a lot of the the various entities that audiences like ours are exposed to uh, would be more secular than they are. They they would be uh, more of a. Um, uh, more a different type of a libertarian than what you'd get out of a Milton Friedman or a um, or even a Ron Paul, for example. Uh, and and so the work and a lot of what the information and coverage and what's highlighted they're exposed to is just simply a byproduct of these things are what we're highlighting and covering the guys that are keeping the lights on and writing the checks want us to cover and want us to write about. And I think that's one of the most one of the because I, I think we need to explain to our audiences why there is this gaping hole in our movement when most people that are that are in the in in, in the concert that are conservatives came into the are people that are middle class people who have no idea what the chevron doctrine is i think that's where gas is and it's too expensive all right so uh, that's what that, that that i think we need to answer for them this question why aren't they getting more of the kind of themes that you're talking about and i just think it's the benjamins but what are your thoughts well, I think there certainly is some of that. Um, there's a lot of um, there is a lot of ignorance about how the media works, about how um, you know donors certainly do support a lot of it, as you say. Um, it, I don't think it's all about the money, although I think that's important, right? Um, so let me put it this way: some of it is as simple as as uh, as you describe. It's look, people want to keep their little spot, and so they don't want to say anything that would deviate from a kind of libertarian in the extreme sense, economic view and social issues be damned. Uh, but that's going to change because of what is happening now, right? I mean, a lot of that's been repudiated and is being repudiated. And the reason Tucker Carlson's monologue was so important is because he's saying the kinds of things mm -hmm. that you're saying. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, all the people are taking notice and they're realizing this is actually popular. This is where things are going to go. So I'm very hopeful about this. But another part of this is elite education in general. I mean, people who yes. regard as educated, people who uh, regard themselves as, as important because of the money they have. Uh, these these people are trained, and, and the, the culture in which they live is is simply uh, um, it avoids morality. It avoids talking about morality. It avoids talking about the family. You know, you're not supposed to talk about that sort of thing. In fact, you know, you're not supposed to be patriotic at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's an enormous problem in uh, elite culture. That that um, you know the right has partaken in for a long time quietly, and people on the ground are, are increasingly aware of it, and that's something that we do need to solve because we're not going to get away with uh, you know a, a purely populist movement without leaders or people who are actually excellent at stuff, right? So uh, you know elite elitism has a has a elites have a bad it's a bad connotation here elite and you think oh gosh if you're like me and, and you know, you're on the right like us. But the problem is we do need good leaders, people who are actually elite, who are actually uh, better than most people at various things. And the problem is that elite education or the places that we take those leaders from now uh, really teach people that, yeah, you don't talk about morality and politics. That's terrible unless you're an SJW, right? Then it's mm -hmm. okay. But other than that, you just kind of speak a utilitarian language of efficiency. You don't talk about justice. You talk about, you know, uh, uh, think tank type reports that have to do with numbers. That's safe. That's okay. That's what, you know, that's what the conservative think tank world is very comfortable with. We wouldn't want to tie this, though, to issues of justice that are, by the way, actually political, 
<laughs> right. And this is what we're seeing now is the the return of real politics, uh, 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 you know, under Trump, it, a real a real political awakening in some ways in America where uh, people are, are, are bypassing all that kind of utilitarian language. And, and most of it's a lot of it's garbage. Uh, you know, you're talking about efficiency when we have people who are committing suicide and we're worried about the efficiency of data in the federal register. I mean, mm-hmm. So this this is crazy, and so so how do we return to that? And we can't return to it unless we have uh, elite elites who are actually elite, who are well educated, who understand the principles and purposes of the founding. Does that make sense? Absolutely. What, what you're telling our audience, and this is really important, what you what you just said to them. The other side are cultural jihadists. We aren't going to defeat them with technocrats. You know, our founders were many of them were were elites. Many of them were educated at what are now Ivy League schools and graduated before they were 18 years old. All right. But they were but they but they understood their place in history uh, and and ultimately what their role was uh, in in order to create um, uh, the United States of America. They under that if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's a mission statement. Um, it is it is not a technocratic manual by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and and that's that's kind of what you you're going to is the other side is creating religious converts um we're we're you know we're we're doing math and you know the technocrats gonna lose to the jihadist every single time every single time give you the last word yeah and that's why elite education has failed because without a response to the kind of social justice warriors they're gonna win every time and they'll control the campus because at least they talk about what's just and unjust and if we don't talk about that, we will not win. Great stuff from Matthew Peterson, Vice President of Education at the Claremont Institute. We'll definitely do this again sometime, brother. God bless. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You know, what? You'd like that kind of yeah, yeah. I, the the timing of this with what's going on today, because even if you're a Trump skeptic, what he said about we're having real political conversations is how many times have I said the last couple of weeks? We're finally having the debate. Yeah. I have I have tried to get Republicans to provoke my entire career. And they have it. And what's happening is, even if you are if here's what I would say to Jonah Goldberg if he was sitting here today. You know what? Thank your lucky stars for Trump. Because even if everything you're saying about him is true, the fact that the Democrats agree with you about who he is has prompted them to be more upfront and honest and forthcoming about who they are and what they really want. They, they think he's so unpopular now that they can take the mask off because they've, see, they've wanted, see, you know, one of the things Nefarious tells us in a Nefarious plot is the devil doesn't really like being anonymous. He's, he, this is the ultimate ego. I'm God, I want to be God. What's more egotistical than that? That's why the root of all, the root of all sin is what? Pride. Pride. All right. The devil's tired of us giving him, giving his credit to, you know, bad education, uh, opioids. He's tired of everything else in our society getting credit for our demise, except where it absolutely, he believes, belongs. And when you have a movement that comes from the same prideful impulse, we shape history. We're basically good. We know better. We can make a utopia. Those are the same instincts. You, you really don't, you'll use anonymity for a while, but ultimately you want the door to the Trojan horse to open. 
You know, you want folks to know who you are, what you're really about. They've been dying for the moment. You want to plant your flag in the middle of your opponent's home stadium. Yes. Yes. So even if you're a hardened Trump skeptic on the right, praise him that the Democrats, as, as using him as their foil, the left now is being as being brutally honest about what they brutally want to impose on us. We're we're actually now having the discussions and the debates that are long overdue. That that when when the late Andrew Breitbart said politics flows downstream from culture, this is what he meant. See, the Democrats have been trying to do cultural terraforming all this time. We've been debate, debating government efficiency. Technocratic matters. The reality is, if you take if you take the regulatory state off the table, the Koch brothers agree with the Democrats on everything else that you care about. That's just the truth. And they're among the biggest and most well-known donors on the right. That's a problem. Okay? That's a problem. Tell me who the big money Democratic donor is who just wants... Um, uh, government to work for his business interests and and doesn't really care about all the other cultural mumbo-jumbo. Tell me who that is. You can't. That person doesn't exist. Their big donors are in on the cultural mumbo-jumbo. They fund it. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have funded how many abortions around the world with the millions of dollars they've donated to that cause over the years. Millions of dollars they've donated. They're all in. So... That's another reason why I think it's a terrible mistake to sign this budget today. Because he's not going to get to have these debates for the next seven months. And if he doesn't have these debates, Aaron, he's going to have the trivial ones that make that drive people away. It's case in point today. <laughs> Look at New York. They're so stupid. Yes. Amazon's not going to build their headquarters there. Now, maybe on a on a day that's not like today with the bill, the, 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 the spending bill or Senate bill. Or is, yeah, spending bill that uh, is up for debate. That is just that is just complete crap and bunk that we talked about earlier in the show. Maybe on a typical day, that what might be an opportunity to talk about the uh, unjust. Pre- you know, what's wh- pick your lane when it comes to that story out of New York. But no, that's the lead story everywhere right now. Shannon Joy, our friend, I don't know if this is true completely or not, but she monitors this stuff. She said that Rush Limbaugh started, opened up his show today uh, talking about Hillary Clinton's emails. That's like an alien, that's like Ilian Omar. What we were talking about yesterday, just turn that out, is such a perfect parody turn out of conservative lights. media that it's just too sad to be true. That, that's in line with what we talked about yesterday. The, the one hijab-wearing member of Congress says... To you know, defund the Department of Homeland Security, and today the biggest name of all time in conservative media, who's devolved into a Trump shill, is still talking about Hillary's emails. When there's an opportunity to pressure Trump to keep having the debate, that he's going to put his pen about. to paper today and fund Hillary's government. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to do. What's more important to you, her emails or funding her schemes? Make a choice. You know, it's bad enough your IRS problems ruined 2018. Don't let it ruin 2019 as well. Consider what's at stake when the IRS has you in its sights. Your check, your bank account, your business, maybe even your own home. And you're smart. That's why you better know 
better uh, than to deal with the IRS alone. You need help from our friends at Optima Tax Relief, America's number one tax resolution firm. Optima knows that behind every tax problem are honest, hardworking Americans with families, paychecks, bank accounts that deserve to be protected. When you engage Optima to fight for you and protect what's yours, you're getting a proven award-winning team that has saved nearly a billion dollars with a B for their clients over the years. So call for your free consultation right now while you still have options. Call Optima Tax Relief at 800 699-6140. That's 800-699-6140. All right, it is time for this week's Theology Thursday as we continue the very first ever uh, Bible study we've done on the show. And we've been going through uh, Paul's letter to the church at uh, Colossae, otherwise known as the book of Colossians. And uh, we, we, are le- we are doing a chapter, we're in chapter three. We've been going through this uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. For those of you that are wondering, I don't know if I've said this in a while, uh, we use the ESV version. Uh, and uh, the reason that uh, we use the ESV version uh, it, uh, it's you know this isn't the version that Paul used um, it, you know there's there's it, we just like the ESV because it's common English but from a word for word translation of the original manuscript so like an NIV would be a, a thought for thought what does that mean it means a team of theologians basically who are fairly orthodox in their theology but are interpreting the original, um, manuscripts into a modern vernacular. That's kind of what it means, okay? So the, the ESV is a word-for-word translation uh, of, of the scriptures in a modern English vernacular. So that's why we use uh, the ESV. So we continue now, chapter three. Now remember, this is where Paul is pivoting, all right? So the Apostle Paul, um, uh, who is a, who, who is educated and schooled uh, in the elite uh, schools of Judaism, Gamaliel is his uh, mentor, one of the leading Jewish uh, teachers and scribes of the time. Uh, and then he comes to believe, mainly because he's encountered person to person, uh, that Christ is the Messiah that he has been waiting for. Uh, and now the irony is, as someone that uh, was completely embedded deep into uh, the elite sectors of Jewish culture where part of the definitions of being a holy people is being set apart. They were to be set apart from the pagan people so that they didn't essentially get wrongly influenced by them because when you look at the times that God judges uh, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, it is always when they fall into inter, uh, intermarriage, interworship, and they start worshiping the fake foreign uh, demons uh, and fake gods uh, of the pagan people. And so Paul is now called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jewish people as, and this is sort of symbolic of the notion now that when Jesus goes into the temple, the famous scene in the New Testament, when he's mad at how they turned it into a market and he says, my house, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, that this is now an outward symbol that God is now turning, uh, going to bring the word of God to the entire uh, globe. Uh, through Christ, and Paul is that first apostle to the Gentiles, and therefore writes a lot of the New Testament because we're going into these Greek Gentile areas, and there's a lot of tension about you know this is a totally different religion. You know, originally this was a Jewish debate. Originally, you have a group of Jews debating with another group of Jews: is Jesus the Messiah or not? So they largely agreed on the moral and ecclesiastical premises of the of the of the day. 
Okay, they, the the real debate was: Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the fulfillment of the of our of our hopes or not? Or are they still unfulfilled? But now we start going into these Gentile areas. We don't even agree on how to eat, how to dress, how to do a lot of basic things. All right, and so he's got a as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now he is he's helping to sift through a lot of these arguments. So in chapter one, in his letter to this church, he asserts. You know the the what what we have called Christology. What is a what this what is a proper orthodox view of God? In chapter two, he then goes into, um, essentially being discerning, separating yourself from false theo- false theology, uh, from worldly philosophy, uh, doctrines of demons. Basically, he calls them empty, hollow, shallow. All right. There's no there there. And now we're in chapter three where he says, now that we are rejecting what's bad, here's how we live for what's good, for what's right. Okay. All right. So we're going to pick this up in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. That's a word we've been using a lot on our show recently. Meekness and patience. Bearing. No, no there is no word. Weakness is not there. Pushover is not there, which means that must not mean what meekness and humility mean. Wimp must not mean what those mean. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Where did you get that idea from? Lord, teach us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven others. That's where he gets that from, okay? And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, admonishing, admonishing one another. What, is it, what does it mean to admonish? Rubbing the belly and telling you everything's going to be all right and yeah, the bad man's going to go away. Yes, that's what it means. <laughs> or correct. Yeah, it means to correct you. And, and in order for me to correct you, I must first do what? Affirm you. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. First, I got to point out you're wrong. You'll get it sooner. <laughs> it's the millennial. He's bringing, he brings a lot of baggage to the table here. All right. Uh, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the father through him. If you want to know why I say on this show, I believe love is not an action. You'll hear a lot of evangelical teachers will use this today, right? You know, in a couple of months, it's going to be graduation season. And, it, and almost every homeschool kid in America, except mine, will, mine, mine may end up doing it just to troll me because she is very much like me, you know. So I, I could totally see her doing that. All right? In fact, I can see Anna going and get her own graduation cake just to put this verse on there out of context, just to troll me. And it's Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Okay. For I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Except if you read, have you ever read Jeremiah 29, 10? You ever read Jeremiah 29, 12, 13, 14, 15, Jeremiah 29, 7, 8, 9? Yeah. 
They're in the middle of, shall we call it, uh, an admonishment. We'll use that word. That's the word we're going with tonight. Uh, In the middle of an admonishment, and this is quite the admonishment. I mean, daddy has taken his belt off, all right? And he's already given the, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Yeah, he turned it around. You got it coming, all right? And in the middle of that, all right, so as to, to punish his people but not to crush them, he offers them this hope and then just goes right back to the, shall we call it, uh, admonishment. We'll call it that, all right? And so every homeschool kid in America, every Christian school kid in America here in a few months when we have high school graduation season is going to put Jeremiah 29 and 11 on their cake. It ain't a Hallmark card, guys. Okay? It's daddy in the middle of breaking his foot off saying, I still love you. All right? But this is for your own good. Okay? Um, so you, but you'll see that verse. You'll see what Paul writes in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. All right? About what love does. Okay? Keeps no record of wrongs. All right? What love does. And so a lot of evangelical teaching, I don't know how y'all Catholics handle it, but a lot of evangelical teaching will teach today that love is an action. I don't think it's wrong. I just don't think it's precise. See, I think love is a motivation. And you know where I get a lot of that thinking from? What we just read. Let me give you a couple of examples. So Paul is telling us here... um, even to admonish one another. But to do so while we are thankful, to do so while we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, to sing psalms and hymns, but to do so with thankfulness in our hearts, uh, those are all motivations. Why are we singing psalms and hymns? Motivations answer the why question. It's Valentine's Day today, fellas. And at least one of you just went, oh, snap. Okay? But I'm like one of my favorite gifts on Twitter where the guy does this with his head. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> All right? <laughs> uh, I actually um, went out and bought uh, Amy's uh, Valentine's flowers like uh, right after Christmas so I wouldn't forget this time. And then she told me a couple weeks later, Hey, I got to be gone Valentine's week I, for my residency. I got to go to, she's finishing a master's course at uh, Liberty right now. She's actually in Lynchburg. So I'm going to be gone Valentine's week. You know, I'm like, so I had to rush back. And I'm like, what do I do? She's not going to be here. And so I, what I did is I, we turned January 14th into Valentine's day. Huh? Huh? Yeah. So I still got mine in, all right? So I wouldn't do that again. So fellas, if you went, oh, snap, and then you thought to yourself, she told me she doesn't care, uh, I'm going to do you a solid right now. With thankfulness in my heart, turn us off, okay? Or you will be turned off. Turn us off right now. Get to finish this later on a podcast, all right? And go and do what must be done, which she lied to you when she told you she doesn't care. Aaron is not married yet. Todd, allow us to help him for the future. When she says she doesn't care about Valentine's Day, that means she, she cares a lot. Yes, it, it's, a, it's a trap. It's a trap, is it not, Todd? Every time. Every time. 
Undeniably so, no matter which woman of whatever political persuasion. Yes. That this, no. Yes. No. Yes. No, never when, when, she, when she says to you, going out with your friends again, okay. It's not okay. Is it okay, Todd? No. No, it's, it's not okay. When she says, well, I mean, I guess if you have to do that, I guess. Does she want you to do that, Todd? No. No, she doesn't want you to do that. No. All right, so, fellas, if when I said it's Valentine's Day, you were like, yeah, we'll talk to you later. All right. Uh, get with the program. But let's suppose you went up to your wife at Valentine's Day and you said, hey, here's some flowers. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, love is an action, right? <laughs> you, you committed the action of purchasing the flowers or at least pilfering them from somebody else's garden. You, you presented them to her and you even committed the action of saying happy. Love is an action. That's what all my megachurch people tell me. You, you did the actions. Now, would any woman feel as if you really truly meant, meant for her to have a happy Valentine's Day? Would she feel that way? No, because your motivations would seem to indicate otherwise. And she'll still probe afterwards. She'll get those flowers and she'll say, oh, so you didn't have to do that. This is because she knows. She knows the rules. Yes, yes. Whatever you do, the last word of the verse, verses that we're sharing today. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it for this motivation. So we struggle with, you know. Wait, just something, Steve, just to be clear. No, everything. A few things? Everything we do. Everything we do. The motivation should be to give thanks to God, to glorify God. Steve, where do you get this notion that the purpose of life is to glorify God? I just read it to you right there. That's where I get it from. I didn't make it up. I plagiarized it. That's a totally different thing. <laughs> right? That's where I got it from. Gosh, everything. It seems kind of judgy, Steve. Yeah. Everything. Like- so, so when we show patience with what frustrates us, we do it for why? For love, motivation. When we admonish, meaning this is not a moment for patience. This is a moment for correction. This is a moment not to let things go. This is a moment for confrontation. I am doing that for the same motivation that I am letting it go this time, that I'm showing patience. For the same, I, the same motivation I show. Come, this, so how do we reconcile? Paul says to his spiritual son, Timothy, in one of his epistles, be patient. Words of love seasoned with salt. And then we see you know, him just use the, the, the Greek word and slang for poop to describe man-made religion he can't, stands, uh, can't stand. The way he just rebukes in the harshest terms you could imagine. Uh, 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 fake uh, skeptics in Galatia, uh, you know, sons of the devil. Why? It's, it's the same motivation. See, because you believe love is an action or an intention, You know, a lot of our audience comes from the political world. In the political world, the way it breaks down is conservatives want to be judged by results and liberals and leftists want to be judged by intentions. Kingdom of God rejects both of those fallacies. Mussolini made the trains run on time. I keep hearing Colin Kaepernick's not in the NFL because he's not a good quarterback. His last year in the NFL, he had a 16 touchdown to four interception ratio. Is that good? Mm. That's pretty good. 
He had a 91 QBR. Is that good? Yeah, that that's, is. That's really good. Yeah. Completed 60% of it. Forget the name. Forget his stances. 60%, 60% completions, 3 to 1 touchdown to interception ratio, and a QBR above 90. You want that guy starting for your team? Would, be, would you be okay with it? Most teams would. So this talking point we have on the right, that he's not in the NFL because he's not a good quarterback, is false. If, because actually, if, if it was about the results of what he produces on the field, he should be in the NFL. Why isn't he on a, a team? Because his motivations aren't football. His motivations are to use football to promote his message. And it's a highly divisive and unpopular one that divides your locker room, your community, and everything else. That's why he's not on a team. Okay? Motivations are what matter. Not always the end results. And then your intentions. Well, you know, I, I intended to feed people. Um, well, that's great. You also uh, bankrupted, you know, the next four generations. And, and, you know, we already have the least amount of poverty in world history anyway. So why are we still following your good intentions that have proven to fail over and over and over again? It's not your intentions and it's not your actions. It's your motivations. Why do you do what you do? Choose this day whom you will serve. I know you're chomping at the well, bit. Go I just, ahead. I think if not now, next week you might have to clear up because I know people have a problem with this. How much does everything you just said, taking the language of Scripture into God, how much does this have to do with Christians talking to Christians uh, who are in good standing, Christians mm-hmm. talking to Christians who are backsliding and know it or don't know it, yep. or Christians talking to pagans? Uh, I think that context will be valuable sure. to start off perhaps next week. Sure. Same, it's the same answer, what's your motivation? But yes, now we're talking about the prudence of, you know, um, you know, feeding the sheep and shooting the wolves. Yes. Yes. Homeowners beware, a data breach has exposed 24 million of you to home title fraud, a crime that could cost you your home. Um, and if you've got a mortgage, a refi, a HELOC through a major bank, this breach may have put you at risk of losing every dollar of equity in your home, maybe even the home itself. Don't let that happen to you. Our friends at Home Title Lock will protect you when the major banks won't. Not even your identity theft, which you should have, identity theft protection, but it won't protect your home and assets like this either. And your home, for most Americans, will be the most valuable investment and asset you'll ever have throughout the course of your lifetime for pennies a day home title lock will protect you when the others won't so if you want to learn more like maybe i'm already a victim go to hometitlelock.com right now get a free title scan and report normally a hundred dollar value free today for our family at the blaze at hometitlelock.com I want to thank all of you for tuning in here today we are back at it again tomorrow beginning with the dace group until then john 317 This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.